Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Still in front of the big thing of books, the bookcase that you haven't read. I see. I still resent that comment from one of our guests because I have read a number of these books and I've read in all of them. But yes, I'm still uh, here. Just, just fun to give you a hard time. That's all, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and today we have Yvonne. I don't know, Yvonne, are you in your she shed? You are totally blurry, so I can't tell where you are. Yeah, no, I am still not in the she shed. We have, uh, you know, there is a shortage of uh, of skilled labor in our world today, and we are still waiting on an electrician to come and get it connected. So it's been oh, moved. It's sitting it's out really back. Sad. We're waiting on power. We've had some travel, so um, okay. trying to get schedules worked out. So soon, awesome. soon, so, I'm hopeful. There, there, there are no she shed helpers to help Yvonne with her she shed. I know it's sad. <laughs> I was thinking, I was trying to think of a way to alliterate it, but my brain isn't that quick today. Yeah. <laughs> That's very sad. So Yvonne, I'll be there at, in Louisville. I just actually booked my hotel room for the LO, what is it? It's, the, it's the KY Nug meeting. So I believe, God, I think it's March 21st. I should have looked up that date. Uh, what is the date? Do you I have think it's March meeting? 21st. Yeah, is what it is. Yeah, March 21st. So uh, look look for details. I'll be sharing it on the socials. But Russ is going to come and talk at our uh, KY Nug event and talk about, I think, DNS and some other fun I, stuff. I don't know. I may talk Russ? about I, I may talk about how, how to make networking cool again. I don't know yet. I haven't decided. Okay. Yeah, I don't right. know. I'm still looking at my topic list. And Adrian's coming with me, so she'll, she'll be hanging out there at the hotel. We'll get to, and, we'll get to and, meet everybody. It'll yeah, be it'll be fun. Cool. Yeah, cool. Okay, so today we are talking about, and you are not, well, I guess it's, I don't know when it was actually published. I never, oh, January 2024. January, so yeah. it is. Yeah, it is a new one. In um, ACM, Communications of the ACM, about about learning. And the title of the article is 10 Things Software Developers Should Learn About Learning. But, gee, these things all apply to network engineers somehow. <laughs> or just people in general. <laughs> so I thought this was this was kind of a cool thing. Um, so I guess we'll just go through these and, and see where the conversation goes. Okay, number one is human memory is not made of bits. Okay, now I would have thought that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think one of the things that that I, I've learned over time, and and this has helped me, frankly, like also in my relationships, is he, we we think of human memory as being very fixed, but our memories actually change over time. And every time you recall a memory, that memory changes a bit, and that's that's why folks, uh, you know, they they did some studies after 9-11, where they interviewed people a couple days afterwards and even had them write out their story and then interviewed them again five or ten years later. And they remembered the story very differently. And, and, and when, when asked about it, they would even say, I don't know why I wrote that, because that's not how it happened. Right. And so our, our memories over time change. So it's not as if we have zeros and ones that are stored in our brain in a collection of bits. 
um, our humanity means that our memory functions differently. And, uh, and I think especially for those of us in technical fields, we, we create analogies that aren't necessarily accurate to reflect how our minds work. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing is that we, we, we store things in our memory that are far beyond the capability of a machine. Like a machine couldn't encode emotion and machine couldn't really encode nearly as much context as we have in our memories. Um, it's just a much more rich data set. Like it's almost apples and oranges in, in, in my opinion. Yep. Yeah, it's very true. If you think about like our five senses, right? So, and, and you think about the connection of either music or smell to memory and how those senses are, are able to trigger memory often, like far better than language. Um, that's, that's some of that additional uh, data, I think, Tom, that you're talking about. And it's a fascinating observation. Yeah, I, I do think that I think our memory is richer than digital in a sense, in that we store more stuff. Like when you remember something, you're actually bringing it back to life in your memory. Like you can, I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but if you think about like a hot dog you ate as a kid or some really fascinating thing that you ate or something was your favorite dish, you can almost really taste it again. It's not as dry as, or, or as cut, cut and dry, um, or as abstract as computer memory, but it's, like Yvonne said, it's very changeable. We remember things differently over time. Um, yeah, so that's that's an interesting thing. So the other one, the, the second one, Yvonne, we've talked about this before because of thinking fast and thinking slow. And actually, this comes up in the book Nudge as well, which I kind of have a love-hate relationship with these things. But anyway, human memory is composed of one limited and one unlimited system. So, you know, it says there is working memory. And there is long-term memory. Working memory is fixed. And it says in this article that its capacity is roughly fixed at birth. You can't do much to change about your working memory, the size or scope of your working memory. And things transition between your working and long-term memory as things go on, as time goes on. So, I don't know. I know Yvonne has talked a lot about the the, the concept of two, type, of two kinds of memory in the past. Uh I don't know if you have any more to add. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, it, 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 it's, I've talked a lot and, and a term that comes up in this section quite a bit is cognitive load, right? And, and cognitive load really is the amount of effort it takes us to accomplish a task or to think about a thing. And, and one of the highlighted quotes here, it says expert developers can reason at a higher level by having memorized common patterns in program code, which frees up their cognition. So the, the more, more patterns that you recognize without having to cognitively consider them and understand what they mean, that that's going to expand your capability and and we know this too from like people who who play chess at a master level a lot of chess is pattern matching and so once you know and have have deeply understood those patterns you can you can tie them together in a way that is um it is almost difficult to understand for folks who don't have that level of, of pattern matching, but it's, it's because you're able to make correlations with your remaining working memory that, but because you, you memorize those patterns and they're, they're more intrinsic to, uh, to how you think. 
Yeah. I think the I think an example of this in networking is um, subnetting. So when you're when you're troubleshooting, if you know, um, I, if you're if you're good if you're proficient at um, at calculating subnet masks, um, then when when you're troubleshooting, you you can just look at a thing and you can know you can know which address which subnet this address is in, what it's broadcast, what's network, you know all that stuff. But once you've done it enough, it's it's uh, it's it's memorized in a sense, and you can look at it and pattern match it, and you can use that in a in the greater context. Um, of what's going on with this network, where where is this address versus that one? I think um, that's that's one example of once once you have that locked in, you don't have to sit and think about it and write it on the paper anymore, and it, it gives you it lets you do other more interesting things. And yet, once you're done with the troubleshooting session, two months from now, somebody might say to you, "What was the IP address that you were dealing with there?" And you're like, "I don't remember." That's right. totally blown past my mind at this point. Well, and, and that's, that's okay. and that's what we talk a lot about, like flow, getting in a flow state, and yeah. it's it's getting that um, your your short term memory in a state with all the right information in it, where you can solve the problem that, or accomplish the task in front of you, right? And it actually takes effort to get to that state, and then it is very easy to lose, right? Because because of the finite nature of of that short-term memory. Yeah. Um, and I think the big thing for why me managing was, our calendars is important, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And why, yeah. by the way, it's important to get notifications for meetings. I've missed a couple of meetings this week because I didn't get notifications. <laughs> but I don't remember, you know, I don't remember that I had a meeting on Thursday at two o'clock or whatever it is. I count on my computer to tell me these things. Um, so I think the, I think the thing that really kind of struck me about this one is just that the working memory is limited and its capacity is roughly fixed at birth. That I didn't really expect. Like, so according to this, you can increase your long-term ability memory or it can fade off over time, but you can't ever change your working memory ability, which is interesting to me um, because it talks, speaks a lot about, you know, why it's important to do things to to when you think about improving your memory, you you really need to think about things that are going to improve your long term memory, not your short term memory, because your working memory is just what it is, which is interesting. So the third one here was experts recognize and beginners reason. I think this goes back to what Yvonne just said about when you're troubleshooting stuff. That's absolutely true. Um, when I walk into a network situation. Oftentimes, I can tell you how the network is going to converge. And it's not because I've sat down and reasoned through everything that's going to happen. It's because I've done that so much that I, I immediately recognize this is a ring. It converges that way. That's going to interact with that hub and spoke network this way. And it's just that's the way it's going to converge. And I think this is true even when you're code reviewing, even when you're coding, you don't really think a lot about reasoning through. And by the way, this is also the source of a lot of our mistakes is because once we become experts, we stop reasoning, we start recognizing, and sometimes things are just slightly different enough that what we recognize is not what we think we recognize. So that there, um, 
expertise is one of those things that to me is just a really interesting area of study. Um, there's a, um, I can't remember what the, I didn't read the whole book, but <clears throat> speaking of books, I haven't read, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the 10,000 hours concept. One of the, one of the concepts in there is that, um, often experts w- couldn't tell you how they knew something. They just knew it. So they, um, you know, you'd ask the, ask someone who is expert at recognizing artifacts and being able to distinguish them from a real artifact from a fabrication. And they look and they, with a high degree of accuracy, they can tell you if something is fake or not. But if they, if you ask them, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? They basically couldn't tell you. They're just like, I, I, I don't know. And it, it probably because, uh, you know, it's, it's the pattern matching and the expertise, you know, derived over years of doing it. They're correct. Um, but they, you know, in, in many cases, it's explaining it is a little different. And this is part of why, you know, teaching a thing is, is different than being good at a thing. Um, because as you achieve expertise, you don't necessarily achieve the ability to teach it, but you do understand your pattern matching works really well. Which is also why teaching a thing helps you remember it better or learn it better because it forces you to go back to the basics and re-reason, right? Whereas if you never teach it, you just rely on the pattern matching and you're just going and going and going. But if you reteach it, then you have to really think through, why did I say that? in a way that can be explained. Well, and it's also like, I've noticed that often people who are actively learning a thing are better teachers than folks who are long-term experts at that thing. Because if you're actively learning, then you have recently gone through the reasoning steps to understand, and you may be able to teach somebody who's just a little, uh, little behind you um, better than somebody that's that's miles ahead because you've recently gone through the reasoning whereas it's um there's there's like the the four stages of competence and like once you reach that unconscious competence stage it becomes much more difficult to teach than if you're in that conscious competence stage where it's like i am competent but i still have to actively think about it. And that is a sweet spot for teaching others, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's really cool. So the next one is um, understanding a concept goes from abstract to concrete and back. So this is always something I've said when I teach network engineering is one of the fundamental skills of a network engineer is to be able to move between the abstract and the concrete at will. To be able to look at a system from the outside and say, I kind of understand what it looks like, what the whole opaque box looks like. And then to be able to dive into the opaque box and look at it at will, to be able to move in and out of layers of abstraction. Um, so I don't know. This is, you know, like, again, for example, when explaining a, ver- a, ver- a veridiac function in Python to someone new to the concept, Experts might say that it is a function that takes a variable number of arguments. A beginner may focus on details such as the exact syntax for declaring and calling the function, right? So the difference between syntax and overall concept and being able to abstract it out and understand the idea of a function that takes a variable number of arguments is something that is hard for people to get. Uh, I don't know. 
any thoughts there on that one? Because that's that's an interesting one to me too. Yeah, I think that um, concrete is uh, like it, like it says in the article. Uh, concrete is is easier for the beginner to parse. It's easier for the beginner to grasp onto because it's a literal thing. Um, and then concept is is harder. And the the idea that you start at abstract and go to concrete and come back, I think is really interesting because when you're first describing something to someone, you can't really dive into the details. You have to start abstract. Um, and then as they begin to learn and know how the thing works, it becomes very important to go to concrete so that you can apply what you're learning. Um, I think a common place where in networking where we have a hard time is we start with abstract we go to concrete and then we get stuck in concrete and we never come like in terms of a person's personal development, their skill development, they get into the concrete and concrete has business value and, you know, you configuring stuff has business value. So you end up staying there for a long time. Um, but the engineers that I have always looked up to, they're the ones who uh, made the journey back to uh, abstract. And I think that's, I think it's really important. Yeah. Well, and I, I think about, you know, I, I I have a nine-year-old and he is in the very concrete stage of learning, right? I, I want to know what the right answer is. I want to know, like, is this right or is this wrong? Or, you know, we had this conversation at school and I want to, I want to understand how to think about that in, in very, you know, binary concrete terms. And I, I do think like the, the being able to move back to abstract is incredibly important. Um, that abstraction though can be very frustrating to somebody who's in the early stages of learning and i think understanding when we're in a conversation or when we're teaching somebody you kind of have to get a sense for where they are and whether like what they need in the moment is a concrete answer or a more abstract way to think about it because I find myself, even with my nine-year-old, uh, it happened this morning, trying to be like, okay, but there's another way to think about this, right? And then, but but if you go there too quickly, it just becomes confusing for the learner because they don't have all the context yet to be able to parse all of that. Um, and so I think there's this interesting calculus that we have to do to figure out, like, when does the situation need to be super concrete and when can we dive into the abstract? Um, that's, that's, uh, and, and that's a, a different, but very related topic. Yeah, it is definitely. Yeah. And, and I think that this, this idea of, like you said, Tom, of being able to go back and forth, uh, for instance, I was just interviewed recently for an article and they chose hardware as something to talk about. And I was like, <clears throat> but that's very, that's very, very concrete. But I understand why people who first come into the networking field are very interested in hardware and in configuration because those are concrete things. I can put my hands on them. I can do something with them. So that's that's a thing that, that is very important um, to start with. But it is important to be able to move out into the abstract levels uh, at some point. So the next one is spacing and repetition matter. Now, this is your... What is it, 30 hours, Tom? Is that what you said? 20 hours, whatever it is? Oh, well, no, the rule is 10,000 hours. 10,000 um, hours, yeah. <laughs> but, well, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think probably what's being discuss discussed here is um, when you when you learn things, a human, you can't just, in a computer, you stick a, a value in memory in, in, a, in a variable, reference it with a variable, and you're done. Humans don't. It's not that easy for us. Like, we can't just 
you know, one operation stick stuff in our brain. We have to be exposed to it, rest, be exposed to it, rest. And then that's how things become permanent for us. Um, and that's, that actually requires quite a bit of discipline. I think, um, it's a lot easier not to do that. And I think we also have to be really selective about what we spend that effort. What, what things do we store permanently like that? Um, because there's lots of stuff that's worthless that, um, in, in terms of having, you know, stored in your memory, is it really worth having that in there? Um, yeah. Well, so, so, and, um, good. Well, I, I was just gonna, you know, we've all had that experience where you're troubleshooting a problem or you're debugging code and you're banging your head against the wall and you've spent a ton of time on it and you, you know, you're close, you know, it's right there in front of you. You just can't figure it out. And I think like this, the concept of spacing is that sometimes like, yes, you, you need repetition to learn, but also you need breaks in between there um, to allow your brain to, to, to absorb and to conceptualize. And, you know, I know I had one very memorable situation where I sat at my desk, it was seven or eight o'clock at night. I knew I was close. I was almost there. Finally, like, I'm just exhausted. You know, it's time to put the kids to bed. I've got to get home. And then the next morning I came in and 15 minutes into looking at the problem, I knew what was going on with it. Right. And so I think understanding these rhythms and patterns and how our brains work can help us know you know, you know what, like the best thing I can do right now is to step away, to go take a 15 minute walk, to go uh, grab some lunch, to go run an errand, to give my mind some space to process. So there's, there's this flow state that we can get into. And when you're clicking, right, keep going. But like, once you hit a wall, you need to just step away because it's actually going to be more productive and and get you to a solution more quickly if you take a few minutes and and back off and and to me that's that's what i think about when i see this like spacing and repetition matter you need repetition but you also need time between those repetitive motions yeah and i would also say that this is something that that people who write applications and stuff um take advantage of this actually this is where you get into addictive properties where people can use variable reward to push specific learned behaviors into your long-term memory. And it's very hard to break a habit once it's in long-term memory that you do this and that happens. And you can do this and you get a reward, whether it's endorphins or whatever it is. And so this also relates a lot to habit making processes, intentionally building habits that it doesn't really help to do the same thing at the same time every day, all the time. Sometimes it's better to give yourself a very vari variability in that because that actually builds into your long term memory better. So that's another area where I think these kinds of things can come into play in the way that we think about intentionally learning. Um, and if you're thinking about, I'm going to go learn networking, I'm going to learn this new protocol. It may not always be good to set aside 10 o'clock in the morning, every morning to go do it. It may be better to study twice one day and once the next day and skip the next day because the variability can actually help pull stuff from your working memory into your long-term memory better. When I love that that the article gives us some very concrete guidance here. It says to structure a day of learning, learning should limit learning bouts to 90 minutes or less. 
Um, and that has to do with the, the neurochemical composure of our brains. But then it also says after each of those 90 minute or less sessions, we should take 20 minutes to rest, um, which is uh, like we're not, um, you know, working on other tasks or browsing the Internet. It's like we, we are literally resting by going for a walk or doing something that's that's uh, appears very idle. Um, and it also uh, adds that sleep also helps with this process, which it calls the consolidation process, where we take what we've learned, we pack that back into our long-term memory. But that is, is actually a thing that takes time, um, and we have to allow our brains that time, or ultimately, we, we just won't absorb whatever it is that we're attempting to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one is the internet has not made learning obsolete. And this is actually hard for people sometimes. Why should I, why should I memorize anything or learn anything when I can just get it off the internet? Right? Why should I learn to code this when I can just go to Stack Overflow and just grab the copy, copy somebody else's code? Why should I learn how to access a file when I can just go to GitHub and, you know, grab that bit of code from somebody else's project? And I think part of the reason is, is that, as it says in the article, we learn by storing pieces of knowledge in our long-term memory and forming connections between them. If we don't have anything to work from, then there's nothing to make connections between. And therefore, we don't, we can't move from the reasoning to pattern recognition for real because we can't recognize the patterns. There's no, there's no connections in our brains to do it. So, and I I think back to like, go ahead. I was just going to say that the article also, it refers to cognitive load again, right? The, the, the act of going to find the information as opposed to having it in your memory and being able to pattern match and recognize and, and compare that contextually to everything else going on. Like that's not going to happen if that's not in your brain, right? So if you have to research it and find a fact and then, like there's a load associated with that um, that takes resources away from cognition regarding multiple facts or multiple pieces of information. So it's still important to have it in your brain. Yeah. I, I, I find that um, a lot of things that I need to do, I have to synthesize um, from multiple uh, sources of, of whatever I find on the internet. And if you have, um, if you have the connective tissue in your mind of concepts that are already in there, it makes that, uh, so much easier. You, you can, for example, I, I find that I can read most man pages really fast because I see a word. I know what that means. I don't have to sit and read the sentence and figure out, uh, what's the, what's trying to have, what's going on here. What did the author intend? Um, but if you, if you just said, Oh, I'll just, I'll just have, I'll store the connections in the, in the computer, in the, in the cloud or in the internet. Um, then you have to look up every single one of those things. You can, your brain can't do it automatically. And so I think that's part of the, the cognitive load uh, comment there too. Um, and but so, but when you have the connections inside, then you can, in, in your mind, you can look at multiple sources, synthesize really quickly. I think the efficiency goes way up um, when you have made the map in your mind rather than waiting to retrieve the map um, from an external source. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's all definitely true. Um, I, my mind goes back to when writing was first invented and people were saying, well, if you can read and write, then you won't need to memorize anything. It's the end of learning. 
and this goes all the way back to Greece, um, that's not really not true, right? It doesn't really replace your human ability. And if you're allowing it to replace your human ability, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, so the next one in here is problem solving is not a generic skill. Yeah, it's learned. I don't know how, how many times somebody has to say that for people to accept that you learn problem solving. This is not a, um, so yeah, you learn how to solve specific problems. It's not a generic skill. So when somebody says to me, you have good problem solving skills or I don't or you don't have good, whatever it is, it's all very situational. This, this is why I may not know how to take my cell phone apart, but I know how to read a network, right? Because problem solving skills are specific. They're not, they're not generic like people seem to think they are. Yeah, yeah. And that goes back to having context-specific knowledge, right? Like, so just, just your ability to problem-solve in general doesn't necessarily mean you'll be able to problem-solve in another domain. And this is where we end up with the, the problem of folks who have deep confidence and capability in one area, enter the public sphere, and think that they know how to solve all problems because they have deep, deep confidence um, in, in a particular area that those, those skills don't necessarily translate without the expertise and contextual knowledge. Yeah. And by the way, this is, a, this is also movie stars who played a, a, a farmer in a movie and now think they understand farming because they had to go research it and sitting in front of a congressional panel or something and saying, I, I know farming. I played a farmer on TV. No. No, 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 that is not deep expertise. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just really not. So, and we do that an awful lot, particularly in the public sphere. We think that because someone's a technical expert, they should also know a lot about privacy and the importance of privacy. That's not really true. I mean, you know, there's a, there's your expertise is, is, is your expertise in a given area. And speaking of expertise, you know, Tommy, you were talking earlier about how, being interested in expertise. The next one here is expertise can be problematic in some situations. I think we've talked about this a little bit already and how, yeah, sometimes because you are an expert, you miss things. 
Yeah, one of the other points in here I think is really important is uh, the relationship between experts and beginners. Experts often help to train beginners, but beginners without experience in training others do not often often do not realize that beginners think differently. Thus, they fail to tailor their explanations for someone with a different mental model. Uh, that's a that's a that's a big problem. Like we we look at experts and think of them as oh they're these wonderful people, um, but there's some real downsides to expertise, and one of them is not being able to relate to other people who are not experts. Uh, that that's a huge downside, and it's almost universal among experts. Yeah, um, and you know, often they're it doesn't mean that they're all mean or that they're they're bad people. Um, I know many experts that are extremely kind individuals, but still there's like scratching their head, looking at this person who doesn't know, doesn't have the level of expertise they have. And they they sincerely don't know what to do with that person. Um, and I think we often assume that because someone has expertise, they also have the ability to explain it to someone who doesn't. And it's just not the case. Most of the time, experts don't have the ability to explain it to someone who's not also an expert. Yeah. When an example of this that 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 put this into stark relief for me recently, I was at a at a sales conference, and um, you know, we were talking about inventions and and inventors, and um, Bent Surf's name was mentioned, and um, and you know, as as the inventor of 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 protocols, and uh, and somebody kind of within my orbit was like, well, what is IP? And how, like, that is actually, for someone who would ask that question, is quite difficult to answer, right? To think, like, how do I answer that? Well, it's, it's what makes the internet work. It's like the protocol that, that everything we do is founded on. But beyond a basic, like, this is how it applies to you, you think about answering that question um, after a certain degree of expertise in networking. Um, and, and it's actually quite difficult to have a, to give a meaningful answer. Right. And that's just a small example. And, and Tom, I had highlighted that exact same paragraph. Um, and, and, and it just says more eloquently what I was trying to say earlier. It says somehow, sometimes, however, knowledge becomes so automated, it's difficult for experts to verbalize. And this was what Russ was getting at. Like that. I just know, like I, I could just tell, like I've seen this before. Um, which which can be a double-edged sword, but certainly um, is one of the challenges of expertise. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, the mental model thing, a lot of times what's hard for an expert to understand is that the person that you're talking to just doesn't even have a mental model. What you're talking about with what is IP? It's not just that they don't – it's not that their mental model is deficient or small. It's that it doesn't exist. And here is where it's important to be able to go back and say, okay, there is a concrete real world example. What can I do to illustrate this concept in a real world example? Right. What, what does that mean? Um, like for IP, the one I always use is a shipping container. Like you encapsulate something in it that you're going to ship it has an address. People read the address and figure out where to send it. That's about the closest I can come to real world IP there. I mean, I don't know what else. Like, it's not perfect, but I'm sure there are better ones. But like, that's what you got to do in your head. You've got to think, okay, this person has no mental model. Now, what do I do? Um, so the next one is the predictors of programming ability are unclear. 
This is so important because we think that we're going to be such good interviewers or whatever that we're going to figure out how to tell who's going to be a good network engineer and who's not. And to be honest, it is not something that you, it's very hard to do and it's never going to be perfect. Um, it's very difficult to predict how any given person is going to fit into a culture, how that person is going to, what their abilities are in their environment. Again, part of this is because problem solving skills are specific. They're narrow. They're not broad problem solving skills. So sometimes you bring somebody in who has lots of problem solving skills in one area, and that doesn't necessarily translate to solving problems in other areas. I I it I feel like in my career as I've interviewed people over the years I've gone from um in the early my early uh time with it from okay I want to find out what skills they have and maybe they don't have all of them and that's fine but let's let's find out the ones that they have and then know where that fits in and that seemed reasonable at the time but the more I interview people and talk to people the more I'm like hiring is a total crapshoot like there is there is no way to even like I almost have abandoned the whole idea. It's it, the interview should be a gut check and it should be make sure I can stand this person. And it, basically you get what you get and they're going to be good at some things and they're not going to be good at some other things. And your team is the personality of your team is composed of the personalities of all of its members. And it's going to change every time you hire someone, your, your team changes. Every time you lose someone, your team changes. And I, it, I don't know. That probably sounds a little fatalistic, but it's, it's kind of like there. <laughs> We can't predict, but but we just have to you know hire people we can stand and we'll come up we'll come up with something. I don't know way, what do you guys think. The way I've been saying that lately is that people will surprise you, right? And they'll surprise you in both directions. Like there'll be somebody who's like, you know, I wasn't sure they were going to work out, and they end up just being an incredibly stellar contributor. And then there'll be other people that you were sure that they were going to uh fit in and be great and really set the world on fire and you know they're maybe mediocre or worse so uh, you know it's as as fatalistic as it is tom like I, i've observed that as well like hiring is a crapshoot there are things that you can do um you, you do want to be sure it's somebody that like you could stand working with day in and day out um and there are some basic like bars for competence but at the end of the day, it's very, very difficult and people surprise you. So that's yeah. all I got. <laughs> so the last one I think is really important is the, your mindset matters. Um, so here, I think the money quote is a fixed mindset aligns with an aptitude view that people's abilities are innate and unchanging. Applied to learning, this mindset says that if someone struggles with a new task, they are not cut out for it. A growth mindset aligns with a practice view. People's abilities are malleable. It says that if somebody struggles with a new task, they can master it with enough practice. And I'm not sure either of those is absolutely true. But I think it's important when dealing with people and even with yourself to say, yeah, I'm not getting this right now, but maybe I just need more practice. Or maybe I've been practicing a lot and I'm not getting it. It's time to quit. <laughs> it's, we, you know, I, I know mothers who get very offended if you challenge the idea that their kid, you know, they will say, well, my kid can be anything they want to be. And you challenge that idea and all of a sudden they're very offended. 
and and so yeah i think there's balance here right can 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 they be absolutely anything they want to be well you know there are some like capabilities and 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 circumstances that just are beyond our control but but at the same time i find the people that are most compelling most successful um and and really do do the most to grow learn um help and and contribute have this idea have have a growth mindset and and you know continue to try things that that and and um have confidence in the ability of other people to grow and change and that's something that i've observed in in some of the most phenomenal people that i've I've worked with across my career is not only do they look at the world that way i'm going to try this thing it'll work or it won't and we'll get better but they also see other people that way with with an optimism in their ability to grow and change and i do think that's incredibly important yeah the uh um the thing that i think is in the article, um, the author seems to there seems to be a, a an idea that growth and fixed mindset are sort of fixed, um, and that's what you have. Um, but I I disagree with that. At least in the case of children, I think children can switch between the two depending on their environment. Um, but I think I, I think I, I, I somewhat agree in, in adults. And um, I, I my last comment on this is the most important thing about whether it's fixed or growth is uh, how you treat yourself, um, yeah. how you evaluate other people kind of doesn't matter in that way, but how you evaluate yourself, I think is really important. Yeah. I don't know. I do think it matters how you see other people because it reflects on you as well. Like the way you treat others sometimes reflects on the way you treat yourself. So the more you see other people as being able to learn new things, the more you'll see it in yourself as well. So, uh, all right. So let's wrap up right there. Uh, I know Yvonne has to take off for another meeting. So Yvonne, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Or follow you. Can find you? Me on, yeah. 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 You can find me on LinkedIn at Yvonne Sharp. Uh, I still, uh, am on the platform formerly known as Twitter. You can find me at Sharp Network there and I am doing some semi-regular writing over at Packet Pushers. So look for content from Yvonne Sharp there. Cool. And Tom. You can find me on LinkedIn. That's it. See, that's my homestead. Yep. He's he's just his that that's it. You know, just like one <laughs> thing. Yes, one thing. And Tom, I mean, all those books in the background. That means you must think that you can learn things. I do think I can learn things. <laughs> in fact, I think I think you can learn things, Russ. <laughs> and the people listening, they can learn things too. They can learn sure. things too. That's right. Yeah, I think the whole learning thing is really important and just think being metacognitive about your learning skills and how you're doing things and, and observant of yourself is really important. That's why I think this was, this was a really good paper to go over. So, um, anyway, all right, cool. So I'm Russ White. You can find me here at the hedge on rule11.tech on LinkedIn and on the platform formerly known as Twitter. We now call X. And I think that's about it. I do write at Packet Pushers from time to time. Uh, about once a month, I think, and I actually write over at Mind Matters for anybody who wants to look that up, but there's not generally as technical content over there. Um, anyway, so thanks for spending the time with us. We hope you found this show or this recording, this episode to be really useful in your thinking and how you think about learning. And again, thanks for listening to The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.